Hello, and welcome to Serious Coin. This is the podcast where we have rich conversations about wealth. I'm Kelly Willis Green. You know, whenever I learn something new, I love to share it. And lately, I've been learning about cybersecurity, which is not usually my beat. I assure you, I am no technophile, as this episode will make clear. But it is a topic that I know many of us are concerned about. In fact, did you know? that a survey by Accenture found that 77% of high net worth individuals are more worried about being hacked than they are about a decline in the value of their investments. And let's face it, the likelihood of a cyber threat seems to grow every single day. In 2021, almost 7 million accounts were hacked per day. And cyber criminals are getting more and more sophisticated with their tactics. So how do we protect ourselves? Well, My husband and I decided to be proactive, and we went out and got a cyber health checkup. And I have to say, the results were eye-opening and mildly terrifying, but also hugely valuable. And so I wanted to share some of what we learned to help my listeners, even if, and, and maybe especially if, you are not on the leading edge with technology. So my guest today is the person who led that audit for us, Chris Walker. Senior Manager of the Forensic Technology Practice at KPMG. In this episode, Chris and I talk about the threats we're all vulnerable to, the most common attacks and how they occur, and why the risks are especially great for high net worth individuals. You may even recognize some of the everyday habits and devices that we all have that are leaving us exposed. But the good news is there are also some easy fixes and there is plenty you can do to protect yourself. So have a listen. I think you're really going to want to hear what Chris has to say. I think a lot of people's jaws almost dropped to the floor in a similar way that you responded. Um, I think generally people are aware of sort of security issues, particularly and how it impacts their day-to-day lives. But they're just astounded by some of the figures. Like when when you think about there's something like you know, 6.8 million accounts being hacked at at a given time or given hour. And the fact that, you know, accounts really mean different things to different people, Um, whether it's, you know, an email account, your Netflix account, your Amazon account, you know, people really don't really appreciate perhaps how many accounts and how connected their lives are these days. So I think when you start talking about statistics about that, And I remember you and I were talking about uh, the sort of the statistics that Google put out in and around the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And in a given month, they had something in the neighborhood of 18 million, you know, phishing emails just from COVID. And that was in April 2020 alone. Another similar statistic that we often find that people are surprised at is that in the neighborhood of sort of 50,000 Internet of Things attacks occur each month in 2021. And Internet of Things is a little bit of a new concept. You know, people know things like smartwatches, whether it be smart refrigerators, some of the home devices that you might have, smart speakers, etc. But just even those open up individuals to additional cybersecurity exposure and, you know, just a conversation about that topic just opens people's eyes a little bit more. And I do want to come back to the Internet of Things and some of those devices later on. Um, you take those statistics and then you layer on the fact that 
and something that's germane to listeners of this podcast, that affluent individuals are more at risk than the general population. I think, and this goes a little bit to the conversations we've had, is that I wouldn't say by default high net worth individuals are targeted per se. It's just if I can characterize it this way, their lifestyle. So for example, high net worth individuals are more likely to travel. And so you start entering some of the wrinkles about Wi-Fi networks, whether it be at hotels, conference centers, airports, etc. Uh, In addition, high net worth individuals commonly have more interaction with financial institutions, banks, brokerages, etc. And typically the financial institutions are a large target for some of these threat actor groups. Uh, I think we talked about as well that, you know, high net worth individuals just tend to have more people around, for lack of another term. So elements of physical security about people having access to some of your electronic devices or access to devices that you may inadvertently have left logged into a particular account, etc. And then an- another area I think you and I were talking about, Kelly, is you know there, there may be particular targets. So while high net worth individuals may not be targeted themselves, perhaps you're looking at attackers focusing in on perhaps art galleries or antique stores or things of that nature that just by by themselves lend sort of to a larger footprint, if I can put it that way, for some of these high net worth individuals. So there's a data breach. At, I think you told us about uh, a fine art database that was breached and therefore the information of all of those individuals within the database was breached and they, those tend to be higher net worth individuals. Exactly. And, and that's exactly what happens. You know, people need to be mindful of the places or the organizations that they're storing their information. So exactly to your point, if it's an art dealership, if it's an antique dealership, et cetera, once they're breached, depending on the type of information that, that those organizations store, your information is then out there. Right. So let's talk about a couple of the most common attacks that people uh, may be subject to. The first one that comes to mind is phishing. And if you could just, not everybody may be familiar with that term. So if you could just quickly define it uh, and briefly what what's meant by that. Phishing attacks boil down to you receive a fictitious email, an email that purports to be from someone you know, or a business that you know, that then either contains some sort of malicious attachment that once you open it, it will download you know, some sort of software or application to the device you're using, or it will encourage you to click on a link. So it might appear to be coming from a financial institution, a rewards program that you signed up for. Please click on this link, enter your username, your password, etc. And behind the scenes, it's not that legitimate organization. It's not that legitimate individual. It's one of these threat actor groups that's then collecting this information that they've obtained to use in other sources, or if they've downloaded, been able because to get you to access an attachment to an email, it's then downloaded an application to your device that then perhaps gives them insight or control over that device as well. And that that is the most common type of attack suffered by individuals. I think it's something in the neighborhood of, you know, 30% of the give or take of the cybersecurity incidents that impact individuals are derived from those phishing attacks. And they seem to be getting more convincing all the time. The logos are getting better. The language, 
cyber criminals are getting better at mimicking the language of the user uh, and digitally posing as that individual. Um, I- I've gotten so paranoid that I I don't want to click on anything, including vital systems updates. <laughs> so you could you could go too far the other way. You know, it's not uncommon that we hear that from a number of individuals. Our sort of guiding light in that instance is if you're ever unsure, go back to the institution. So for example, if you receive an email that purports to be from your bank, pick up the phone, call your bank, or go through your normal channels just to confirm whether or not it's legitimate or not. The other one you hear a lot about these days is ransomware. It's a term that gets thrown about. And I know that you said that it's more a threat to corporations, but a byproduct is that individuals may be affected as well. So again, uh, briefly tell us about ransomware. Yeah, so ransomware is probably the most widely known and most common cybersecurity threat to organizations or businesses. And really, in a nutshell, what happens is attackers gain access to an IT environment. And once they gain access, they then go in and take out, whether it be data, information, et cetera, from that organization before then deploying the ransomware, which effectively locks their entire computer system, their IT environment down. And they, the, the threat actors then approach the organizations and say, we've locked you out of all of your IT systems. We've taken all of this data and information from your IT environment please pay us X sum in Bitcoin in order for us to A, not release the information that we've taken and B, to unlock your systems. So like you were saying, it's uncommon, I I would characterize it as that for an individual to have their computer systems impacted by ransomware. But again, it ties back to the comment we were talking about earlier is that if individuals have personal information at one of these organizations that then suffers a ransomware attack, that information is then in the hands of an attacker that they could then use to exploit the individual. So we wanted to be proactive and hopefully not suffer an attack. So we engaged you and your team to help us assess our own cybersecurity health. And and the starting point was you had us fill out a, a really lengthy questionnaire about our online habits, the devices we own, the places we use them, the apps we have installed, the security measures. It was very, very thorough. And I can tell you, like just going through that exercise was a bit humbling because in some cases we didn't know the answers to the questions. My first question is, uh, does anybody get a clean bill of health on those questionnaires? Short answer is no. I, I would even throw myself into that bucket. I don't know if I would get a complete clean of of health. <laughs> you know, I think we did have the impression going into it that, you know, many individuals, high net worth individuals that you would serve are tech savvy and that would have things in place to protect themselves. You said that that's not necessarily the case. No, high net worth individuals, obviously, you know, they, they have a lot of things that are going on. I would say, you know, their, their level of tech literacy, just it's a broad spectrum. Some are very technically savvy. Some are rather, I would say, more simplistic in that they have a computer, they have a phone, they know how to turn it on, they know how to navigate the, their day-to-day, but they're not aware. I mean, particularly when we were when we were working through the questionnaire with you, I think there was a number of features or functionalities of some of these, whether it be your iPhone or your iPad, you just weren't aware that you could turn on. 
And a lot of these, you know, elements, they're not commonly known, perhaps, and it, they're very simplistic to address. So I know one, one of the misnomers we tried to clarify with you was that a lot of people think, you know, being proactive in cybersecurity requires you to be very technically sophisticated. But that, that's not necessarily the case. It's just being made aware of some of these features that you can enable that will better protect you. Great segue then to talk about some of the features, some of the common threats and fixes. And one is, you mentioned it earlier, Wi-Fi and specifically public Wi-Fi. In terms of Wi-Fi, the old rule, so to speak, is don't connect to Wi-Fi connections that you're that you don't know or that you are uncommon to you. So for example, connecting to you know, the coffee shop down the street, connecting to the Wi-Fi in an airport or a hotel or something of that nature. We understand, in, you know, as a cybersecurity professional, you know, there's certain instances where you're going to have to connect to Wi-Fi. So for example, I was recently traveling for business. I opted not to connect to the airport um, Wi-Fi that was offered. It instead worked off of my phone, you know, tethered my phone. So I felt more protected and secured, but I did connect to the hotel Wi-Fi. It's by nature, people are going to have to connect to Wi-Fi in certain places. What we generally recommend in those instances is that people you know, go by, go through your day-to-day -day routine, but don't, for example, do banking on Wi-Fi networks that you don't know. Don't, you know, access sensitive information relating to yourself on these un unknown areas and unknown Wi-Fi networks. But again, the, the point is, you know, in today's day and age, people just can't avoid, in some instances, using Wi-Fi. Therefore, just be mindful of the activities you're performing when you're connected. Right. But you'd say no airport Wi-Fi, hotel Wi-Fi, okay, but moderate your behavior. Yes. Yes, I would agree. Yeah. Bluetooth, same thing. Bluetooth is very similar. I know when we talked to you, a lot of people have Bluetooth connections in and out of their car to other devices. A general recommendation for us is disable Bluetooth and other features similar to Bluetooth when they're not in use. It's so hard. I know. I know. <laughs> Even myself, I, I was in the car the other day and I came out and it was a couple hours after I noticed my, my Bluetooth was still on. The rationale for that really comes down to you want to decrease, the, if I can put it this way, the entry points. So for example, having Bluetooth open is just another avenue if an attacker wanted to exploit you to try and get into your devices, your computer systems, what have you. So just cast your mind again to trying to disable those features and functionalities on your devices that you're not using. Passwords. 23 million people use generic passwords, one, two, three, four, five. And 50% of people use the same password for multiple accounts. And I have to admit, once upon a time, I probably was guilty of that once or twice myself. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting anecdote. We were working on an engagement recently. And I think we were given something like 20,000 password protected documents. Nobody knew the password to those. So what we did is we applied sort of the top 100 commonly used password, one, two, three, four, five, password one, password two, what have you. And we actually successfully opened 
more than 80% of those documents. So it's still an issue today. Wait, 80, you were able to open 80% of the documents surely by guessing at passwords using the 100 most common. And this is for a corporation. Correct. These are for corporations. I hope I don't have an account there, but (laughs) (laughs) it does show you the exposure. It, It shows you the exposure. It was the most, you know, 100 most commonly used passwords. So again, it, it's just being mindful of commonly used passwords you should avoid, reusing passwords you should avoid. I know it's a hassle as an individual to try and remember all of your passwords. There are tools like password management software applications that you can use that will help you manage. Some people a little bit uncomfortable using those. There was actually recently, um, notification of a breach by one of these password management companies. So again, it's it's one of those things where people need to arrive at their own personal level of comfort. But again, the, the main recommendation is don't reuse passwords and don't use generic passwords either. And to avoid using the same password, you can use tricks that only you remember the the code, if you will, to how you created the password, right? Correct. So th- there's a number of common um, tricks that are used. So for example, people may pick the the name of you know their husband or spouse, their daughter, their children, etc., or their previous address or something like that. And at least the beginning part of their password may be similar, but then change to accommodate the particular site. So for example, I have a pet. His name is Cosmo Kramer. The beginning of my password might be Cosmo Kramer. I then may have the address of a, of a previous home I lived in. And then at the end, append it with something like LinkedIn, Gmail, etc. So just adopting that type of strategy, it, at the end of the day, it's what works for the individual. You know, I guess when it comes down to it, to put it in maybe simple terms, it strikes me, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, this whole security issue is like a house with many doors. And if one door is left unlocked, somebody can enter through that door and move from room to room to room and and wreak havoc. And the more doors you have on your house, the greater exposure. And you mentioned it earlier, the Internet of Things. There are devices that we now have to run our lives that we don't necessarily think about in the same way from a security perspective as we do our laptops and our phones. So things like Fitbits and Alexa and and smartwatches. And these devices present new risks, you say. Tell me why. Yeah, they certainly do. And your analogy to the home having many doors or windows is spot on. You, You know, attackers are just looking for one entry point and then they can maneuver and move from one device to the other. When we talk about Internet of Things, there are a little bit of a novelty in that their concept and their integration into people's homes is relatively new. What's happening with a lot of these devices is people are not changing the default usernames, passwords that are associated with these devices. So therefore, you know, they're they're maintaining the manufacturer's essentially username and passwords which are then easy to guess. And how are they easy to guess? They're not necessarily specific to each device. So for example, you know, if you purchased a, I'm just thinking, you know, a smart speaker or a 
smartwatch or something to that extent. Some of the defaults, and particularly when you're talking about more of the devices that are in the home. So again, the speakers, perhaps you've got security cameras, etc. They will come with default username, password. Like in the historically, a lot of the IT, you know, it was generic username of admin and generic password of admin one. That was sort of the known default. All computer systems came with it, and unless you changed it, everyone essentially out there that had the same type of device or knowledge of the device could access it. So that's what I mean by it's generic or commonly known. The other main challenge is. A lot of these Internet of Thing devices aren't designed or built to have additional security layers put on them. So, for example, it's very common for people to have things like antivirus solutions deployed on their computer systems, which are scanning and protecting the devices. You can't deploy an antivirus solution onto an Internet of Thing device. So, I think there's going to be a period of catch up where these Internet of Things are more integrated into some of the security controls that exist. Yeah, that was really scary to learn. And you know, as you as you talk about that, I'm haunted by that uh, that Donald Fagan song from the 70s or 80s, IGY, What a Beautiful World. And and there's that lyric, adjust machine to make big decisions, programmed by men with compassion and vision. And I don't think. Um, you know, when Fagan wrote that, we were contemplating cyber criminals getting hold of that information. Although I think he was being ironic in the lyric. Right. And, and it's funny, as you mentioned that, I think of some of these examples too, right? I think we, you and I were discussing, you know, that there's, for example, we've talked about the internet of things and devices in the home, but it, it goes to medical devices like cardiac devices. And I remember reading something in the news a couple of years ago, again, it was, you know, these attackers were able to get access to certain cardiac devices or medical equipment. And then by getting access, they actually had the ability to deplete the battery life, to administer, I believe it was sort of like, um, or alter or change the pacing or shocks, et cetera, anodi associated with those devices. And, you know, you bring it to more mainstream, you hear about it's much more common, particularly as cars are becoming more autonomous, or there's a lot more technology built into cars. It's very often we're hearing that, you know, threat actors or, you know, even companies, I think it was, you know, I can't remember if it was IBM or another company had recently sort of hacked into one of these smart cars, so to speak, and, you know, could ultimately take control of the devices. So I think we're entering, we're really entering into an interesting time when everything's becoming more technology-based. And so just the landscape is going to change, particularly from a security perspective. And, you know, this whole exercise for us, and I think why I wanted to do an episode on this with you, is the takeaway for me in all of this is you have to be so intentional uh, about what technology you bring into your life uh, and the convenience it offers and the degree to which, of course, we're, we're participating in modern life versus the cyber threats, the risks. And, you know, like a lot of things in life, people's risk tolerance is going to vary. It, it varies. Investment risk tolerance varies, health risk, travel risk. And it's certainly true of cyber risk. But to be mindful, to be thoughtful, and also to educate yourself so that you're not taking risks you don't know about. I think that's the other really scary thing. 
I would say lack of awareness is probably the largest reason why people are susceptible to some of these cybersecurity threats. And you hit the nail on the head as devices, the landscape, Internet of Things, what have you, expands. People need to broaden their awareness and their exposure and then ultimately make an informed decision, like you were mentioning, about what risks they're willing or not willing to take. That said, you told us and and others have said that it's not if, but when you suffer a cyber attack, despite all the precautions that you may take. Mm -hmm. And you deal with that every day with your clients. You're helping people through that things. Uh, That's unsettling. But if it happens, what should somebody do? So when you suffer some sort of incident or you think you might have suffered some sort of incident, the the first step that, that we always recommend is reach out to someone you trust, a trusted advisor, whether it's, you know, if you're working at an, in an organization, you have access to IT resources, go and talk to them. Come and talk to someone like myself, a number of my colleagues and, you know, other people in the industry. We're always there to be reached out, to be consulted, a sounding board. And I know it's hard for people in the moment to do, but really try and take a step back and think through things. A lot of what we do ultimately when an, you know, an, an individual first believes that they suffered an incident is try and sort of calm them down a little bit, sort of work methodically through what did you notice? When did it start happening? Sort of take stock from that perspective. One of the proactive measures that we do recommend individuals take is try to have some form of accounting, I'll call it, of the accounts and devices that you're using. So for example, we recently were working with a high net worth individual. They had concerns that not only their email account had been compromised, but their iPhone account had been compromised. So we had to walk through the process of resetting the iPhone. The challenge there was that involved their iTunes, their iCloud account, a number of different accounts that were associated with Apple. And because they were set up so long ago, some of these individuals had email addresses linked to accounts that were no longer active and valid. They didn't know the passwords anymore. So Helping them recover from that particular incident took a lot more time and effort because they essentially had to go through the process of changing email addresses, other passwords, account information. And by their nature, some of those are not easy to change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what should they have done? Do some homework. If you're not using devices, if you're not using accounts, close them deactivate them, dispose of them in a responsible way, talk to someone like myself, uh, you know, someone that's knowledgeable in IT that can help you. The second is when you're walking through that process of figuring out which perhaps email accounts or whether it be an Apple account or some other sort of account are no longer in use, pay attention to, I'll put it this way, what email address, for example, is linked to that account. Make sure that everything is up to date. So again, using that example, the iCloud account was tied to a historic email address that had not been used for 10 years. If you can get yourself in the habit of whether it be once a year, twice a year, just going through and and looking, for example, 
what is my Apple account? What what is it attached to? What email address is it attached to? Um, people should also think about changing passwords somewhat frequently. I mean, it goes back to the point we were talking about earlier. People have a lot of passwords to manage, but if you're updating them more regularly, hopefully they're at the forefront of your mind or you're using a tool to help you. Therefore, you're not having to struggle with figuring out how to access and ultimately help yourself recover. So Chris, final words of advice. Give me the two to three most important tips that people should bear in mind. What would they be? One, and I think you already hit the nail on the head, is be mindful in what you are doing. Be aware of the risks. Second would be use multi-factor authentication everywhere you can. Can you just explain that for anybody that might not know? Sure. So multi-factor authentication is typically when you log into an account, you need a username and a password, and that allows you in. Multi-factor authentication adds another layer that once you enter your username and your password, it will then require an additional second password. And commonly that password is sent by a text message to your phone. It'll give you perhaps, you know, a four or six digit number to enter. You enter that and then it lets you in. So it's an additional layer of security. So I would say multi-factor authentication is one of the most commonly recommended solutions that we give to, to clients. Just be mindful of your surroundings and that will take you a long way. And hopefully, you know, at the end of the day, you won't be, I'll put it this way, personally impacted. You know, for example, hopefully, you know, everyone listening, um, I'm not wishing it upon anyone that their, their, their phone gets compromised or their email account gets compromised, but know that at some point, whether it's tangentially through an organization where you've got information stored, you are gonna be impacted. You are not alone. This is not an anomaly. It happens every day. And to the extent that you can, you can just prepare for it. But when it happens, like I say, try your best to work through it, but also make sure you've got some people around you that can help you. So I hope this has been helpful and that you picked up a tip or two on how you can do more to protect yourself against cybercrime. I know that one big takeaway for me through this whole process has been that there is a lot that's within our control. It's not just about antivirus protection or encryption tools. It's our own behavior that is the best prevention against threats. So my thanks again to my guest, Chris Walker, Senior Manager of KPMG's Forensic Technology Practice. I think it was clear Chris shared just a fraction of what he knows on this subject, and it was engrossing. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a review or a rating and subscribe to SeriousCoin on your podcast app of choice. SeriousCoin podcast is provided for your general interest only, and nothing we discuss should be taken as investment, tax, legal, or other professional advice. Always talk to a licensed professional before you take any financial decisions.